Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Good Trash Genrecast. Thanks for listening. Uh, we would love it if you would follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, subscribe there, and all those other good things. Thanks. We got a Black Hawk down. We got a Black Hawk down. Down, 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 down. Good Trash Genrecast. So, dead? That's fine. How about alive? Hmm? Well, I know. Look at these scars. Can you spell it? D J A N G O. The D is silent. Okay, I get it. Right. Emma, who gave you these? Who taught you about these? I learned it from you, okay? I learned it from watching you! If it bleeds, we can kill it. It's your last chance to walk away. Are you kidding? It's five against one. It's three against one. How do you figure? Once I take out the leader, which is you? I'll have to contend with one or two enthusiastic wingmen. The last two guys, I always win. Are you, uh, you done this before? It's getting late. Remember, you wanted this. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you'll never, ever discuss in a film studies course, and yet we apply film studies analysis Anyway, this week's film is Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, which is all about one particular prostitute and the disease with which she infected great many pirates. But we will talk more about that here <laughs> in just that is disgusting. a little bit. You know how hard it was to come up with like a jokey title because it is sort of like what it is on the tin. Yeah. You know, one yeah. of these days we're going to do something like Snakes on a Plane. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, on a plane. A moving documentary about a one herbologist's dream of <laughs> transporting uh, his cargo from Cambodia to the New York City Zoo. So, okay, well, maybe. N- narrated by Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> yeah. um, and Morgan Freeman. This continues our month-long discussion, our month-long marathon, You Don't Know Jack, which is the weirdest marathon we've ever done. Uh, we were typically doing films with the word Jack in the title, but with Arthur's host, Bick, he decided to bend the rules a little bit because they're more like guidelines anyway <laughs> and picked a film where the main character's name is Jack. So there you go. Let's identify these disembodied voices coming to you live for your uh, generic MP3 playing device to, to my left, ma'am, if you would. My name is Alexander Bohannon and you must b- start believing in ghost stories, Mr. Stewart. You're in one. <laughs> very, very good. To the extreme right, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart, and damn to the depths, whatever man thought of parlay. <laughs> Thank you very much. To my right, sir, if you would. I am Arthur Gordon, and I may be the worst podcast you've ever heard of, but you have heard of me. Hey, that's good. That's A- good. Excellent point. My name is Dustin Sells, and Dalton, you're not a eunuch, are you? <laughs> Lo- <laughs> lovely, lovely singing voice. Lovely singing voice. Eunuch. Oh, my God. He's a great soprano. <laughs> That's such a good callback. Holy uh, shit. 
All right, well, let's talk about Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl, right? I guess we ought to. Now, we need to warn you, dear listener, what we do here is this is a not, an, not a review show at all. This is an analysis show, and so that means there will be spoilerific spoileridges, and we will find out whether or not they ever come up with a vaccine for this particular strain of syphilis or not by Ouch. the end of the film. So Ouch. in case you haven't seen this uh, 12-year-old billion-dollar movie, um, you should stop listening uh, right after this first part where Arthur Gordon... Our voice of the cinema is going to give you a brief synopsis of the film. We're going to give you our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then move right into what we do here, business time, and talk uh, some serious critical analysis about the film. So let's begin then with that synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. Blacksmith Will Turner teams up with eccentric pirate, quote unquote, Captain Jack Sparrow to save his love, the governor's daughter, from Jack's former pirate allies. Who are now undead. Yeah, that's about what happens. Yeah, pretty much. That's very succinct. There you go. Full of spoilers, too. (laughs) Well, Arthur, you picked the movie, so this is your fault. So go ahead and begin with your thumbs up, thumbs down review. Well, I actually kind of enjoy this movie and appreciate it more now than when I first watch it. When I came out, uh, it got so hyped up by all of my friends uh, that when I finally got around to watching it, I hated it. Um I just it just didn't live up to that hype for me, and I just couldn't do it. Um, but now with time, I've given it room to aerate and breathe, and I uh, swished it around a bit and then spit it into the goblet. And now I uh, I think it is a really solid film. Um, I love the cast. I, I I think they have a great chemistry together, uh, all of them really. And uh, I I think it's just a lot of fun. It's it's a different type of film. The swashbuckling adventure pirates. It's, it just feels different. I think from a lot of stuff that was coming out. And still comes out. Uh, my only real issue is the length. It's long, and at times it feels really long. And uh, I, I feel like they just keep stretching that narrative to try and make this into an epic. And it's it's a problem that really serves the whole trilogy, the original trilogy. Yeah, that, that pacing is definitely an issue with this. I forgot how long it was until I was like, how could this be longer than Mulholland Drive? And it is. <laughs> yeah. Each entry grows by 20 minutes. It's It's ridiculous. And so yeah, that third entry is just shy of three hours. Yeah, long. Ugh. yeah, Ugh. and it feel and I don't even know what's happening in that you movie. Feel every second of that I three watched, hours. I watched two at, right after watching one, and it feels longer. And they have that same. Let's just throw some set pieces in here just to do some set pieces. But in, I started three, and I I'm still haven't finished it. And it just I don't even know what's happening. Nobody likes anybody. Nobody's friends with anybody. It's a weird damn movie. And people just fighting all 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 over. And I don't know what's happening except that somehow Elizabeth Swan becomes king. Of the pirates. Makes sense to me, I guess. I guess. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon, for that thumbs up, thumbs down review. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, let's say you in terms of review. Well, me hearties, I wanted to give you a, a thorough review of this movie, hopefully using these uh this lovely tone of voice. No, I'm not gonna do that what? to you. That's <laughs> thank you for being my uh my my parrot on my shoulder, Arthur. Um, this movie is really fun. I am I really enjoyed it. Uh, to be honest, I haven't, I haven't enjoyed any of the films for New Jack. You don't know Jack so far. Um, I didn't enjoy Jack Reacher Creature. I didn't really enjoy New Jack City. So it was refreshing. What do you mean you don't like New Jack City? Yes, I uh, want to shoot you so bad. <laughs> you, please go on. I want to know how bad you want to shoot me. I'm, 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 fi- I'm fine. I'm done. <laughs> okay, it. it's not personal. 
just business. It is just business. No, um, this movie is a lot of fun, and I was pretty engaged the whole time. I was honestly surprised, and I guess, I mean, when this came out 10 years ago, uh, my age now. Okay, so, you know, I was barely an adolescent. Um, and no, screw you, Dustin. He, like, made a, a, a face of, like, I'm with a bunch of babies here. Um, I really didn't really appreciate a lot of the comedic beats in this movie. There are some great comedy, like, parts in this movie. Like, just some stuff of just the... Like, the first thing you see is... um, I called him Legolas in my head. Uh, (laughs) You see... Orlando Bloom. Orlando Bloom, former, you know, stud Legolas, of everyone's yeah. Yeah, heart. Like, he, like, messes with that candelabra on the wall, and then he breaks half of it and then hides it in an urn. Like, some of this stuff is just really funny, like, really great moments played for comedy. I almost did some kind of, like, uh, trope reading about, like, comedic beats in this movie, but... Um, I, you know, didn't, didn't want to go that direction, but I really enjoyed it for that. Yeah. It goes kind of long. I was like, wow, this movie covers a lot. They still have to do X, Y, Z, Epsilon, Omega things in this film. Like you have to, I went out of order, uh, but they have to do a lot in this film. Um, otherwise I, I thought it was fine. Like for sure. It was a, a romping good blockbuster. The CGI is kind of, it used to scare me honestly when I was a kid, but I'm glad that... It looks a little wonky now. It looks a little uh, crunchy now, but... Yeah, no, I thought it was I thought it was pretty good. It was pretty fun. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you in terms of review? Yeah, it's fun. Uh, it's got a fun cast. It's got a fun score. got a fun script, fun dialogue, fun stunts. It's fun. Um, that score is fucking great, by the way. That score. It sells it. It sells um, it. And the, sorry. And the when they're doing the sword fight yes. at the blacksmith and the, the, do, do, matching do, do, the beat. beat, oh, it's perfect. beautiful. Yeah, the, the use of music in this film is really great. It helps sell that, that whole swashbuckling adventure. you got to think, there are not that many pirate movies uh, post, like, 1960. I mean, uh, there's a couple of um, <clears throat> Treasure Island uh, adaptations throughout the for- 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then there's there's Pirates starring Gina Davis in the 80s, which is like this gigantic flop, one of the biggest flops in the history of cinema. And everybody's like, well, pirate movies don't make money. So it was kind of weird that uh, Gore Verbinski, who uh, had mostly just done a couple of indie films prior to this, did uh, adapted uh, one of Walt Disney's most famous attractions into a feature-length film. And the fact, I mean, that's not anything unusual now. That's something we expect. But the fact that it works at all is is really impressive. And, and Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush are having the time of their lives. Um, Orlando Bloom, who has never been the most charismatic actor, uh, definitely uh, does his best to sell the relationship between him and Keira Knightley, and I think he does a pretty good job. Keira Knightley's having a great time here, too. Really a lot of fun as the female lead. Um a strong female character that doesn't just mean she has a short haircut and tattoos and a gun. Yeah. Which is what I was, strong I really, female character means a lot. Yeah. And I appreciated her in like contrast to the strong female pirate character because. Yeah, played it's by like, Zoe Saldana. Yeah, because yeah, there's, you know, there can be more than one strong female character in a movie. Crazy, I know. But yeah, it, it's fun from top to bottom. It really is. I mean, the dialogue in this movie is so hysterical. Uh, Jeffrey Rush says to uh, Keira Knightley, um, that was a whole bunch of long words. We are but humble pirates. Uh, the, the Thank you, Jack. No, we named the monkey Jack. The eunuch callback. Uh, you're a cheater. Pirate. Like, so good. Like, snappy. 
uh, almost kind of screwball comedy esque like beats in the dialogue. Yes, that's it's, that's where oh, I, I, I mean that's for me half of what works so well about this movie is how funny it is. Yeah, um, the action set pieces are really well done. Me and Dustin were talking before we recorded about the level of practicality with the stunts in this film. I mean, they have actual wooden ships firing stuff at each other and blowing up and people jumping from ship to ship in these giant water tanks made to look like open ocean. It's pretty astonishing, and the sword fights are all really well done. Again, uh, some of the CGI elements do not look good, but the fact that they stayed so close to practical effects in this first film work in its favor, not something they did in the sequels. Um, honestly, this is, the, and that was something that I, man, having only recently watched the sequels to this film, having not revisited the first one, in hindsight, it makes you really appreciate this first one so much more when you go back and look at those sequels that don't really work very well. So I was excited we watched this. It's a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I would also say the movie is a rip-roaring, rollicking good time. Um, it's fun. Um, I, I like watching it. It is long. Uh, Johnny Depp's performance is amazing. That Keith Richards impersonation is a just absolutely an inspired decision. Yeah, too, too bad he, uh, he took this film and continued playing the Johnny Depp Silly Hat Show for about ten years. Yeah, I guess, but it was it's fun, and so I'm I'm all behind that. I the the production, as you guys have said, has been great. Costuming and sets overall are just re- they look really, really, really great, and so um, that's that's stuff I really appreciate. So I, I have fun watching the movie overall. It is a bit long, as I say, uh, but yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. And as far as a blockbuster um, bit of cinema goes, and as far as entertainment in cinema goes, it does all the things it's supposed to do, and it does them very, very well. So it's a movie I like a lot. Equally to my co-hosts. Definitely a four-quadrant film. I mean, it's got jokes, it's got romance, it's got high seas adventure. Yeah, I mean, it, it appeals to, that's why it's a hu- it was a huge success. It, it's got something for everybody, uh, as the marketers say. Well, there you go, dear listener. Now you know our biases, they are mostly pro. Now let's move on and get down to business. <laughs> That's right, dear listener. The business in question is analysis. We're going to bring that to you right here, right now, and we're going to go first with Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you in terms of analysis? I want to talk a little bit about Johnny Depp and his career and a little bit about Disney and what pirates means to that. Uh, When Johnny started in the business, he quickly became a heartthrob, which is something he didn't really care for. His early roles on 21 Jump Street, Nightmare on Elm Street, kind of launched him into this team beat type of figure, and and that's not something that he really wanted. He always wanted to be more of kind of this – uh, character actor and kind of an artist, I think. Um, he's notoriously quiet, reserved as far as his fame goes. Uh, he doesn't watch his own movies after they're made. He's just kind of a different breed of monster. So he began searching out roles that were different and quirky. His early 90s films were filled with little indie and studio dramas or eccentric work. Uh, Benny and June, once eating Gilbert Grape, and probably most notably Edward Scissorhands. Oh, and then even like low budget crime dramas like uh, Donnie Brasco with Al Pacino. Yeah. Uh, they're all, you know, films we think back on and instantly think of Johnny. And, and throughout the 90s, he began to develop this identity as a character actor, leading man, kind of a hybrid of two different uh, genres of actor. Uh, and in doing so, he started to become what we would call an auteur of commerce. Uh, usually when we talk of auteur, we talk about directors and sometimes uh, producers, such as Spielberg or. Uh, uh, Selznick. Well, or and even so, Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer of this film. Yeah. Bruckheimer's actions, Gone in 60 Seconds, and The Rock, I believe. And oh, just, yeah. All he the produces a lot of Michael Bay's films. Yeah, I mean, he is definitely 
one of the biggest names in film production. Yeah. Um, and so he was an actor by which studios would start to sell their movies. And in any of his collaborations with Tim, uh, Tim Burton, which is eight total, uh, Depp's role and performance proves as pivotal to the meaning of any of those films as Burton's own uh, uh, role as the director. And this is the sort of history that we have with Depp. Uh, Pirates then plays a pivotal role in two areas, Depp's career and in box office sales. Pirates blew up at the box office. This was a major hit uh, for the studio and for Depp, and it, it, it garnered award nominations for, for his role. Uh, it was just it was a big deal when it came out. And much of the success was attributed to Depp's uh, performance, and it since spawned three sequels with a fifth on the way. Uh, pirate success led Johnny's career full circle because in the guise of Jack Sparrow, Johnny Depp once again became a sex symbol, something he had always tried to avoid, so his career has come full circle at this point. Uh, he also threw a wrench into his persona as every role he took post-Pirate saw him showcasing a variation on the Jack Sparrow character. Uh, this confident quirkiness ran rampant through his mid to late 2000 and early 20-teens oeuvre. Uh, the depth of the 90s wore many faces and characters. Scissor hands was nothing like his portrayal of Ed Wood or Donnie Brasco. However, the similarities between Sparrow and Barnabas Collins and the Mad Hatter at all are much more striking. And what began from a box office standpoint following Pirates was that Disney mostly began selling their films on the performance of a supporting character. Oftentimes, a bit player will get high billing or top billing, such as Drew Barrymore in Scream or Emilio Estevez in Ducks 3. Uh, but Disney began pushing their post-Pirates ad campaigns almost solely onto Depp's performances as the Hatter and as a Tonto. And it has since put Depp into a tight spot. His non-quirky, makeup-based performances have flopped critically and financially. Uh, the tourist proved to be a critical disaster while nobody cared to see him plain-faced in Transcendence. However, uh, The Lone Ranger also flopped, so it forces one to wonder what is really drawing people to these films. Pirates continues to make money, and Alice in Wonderland is one of the highest-grossing films of all time. But was it depth that drew them in, or was it that they were different and they looked and felt different? Pirates feels like a different type of movie because nobody makes swashbuckling adventure films anymore. I mean, outside of the spy genre, we don't have a lot of kind of Travel the globe, uh, action movies, lighthearted, yeah, action com, like big budget action com. Yes, I mean the eighties. We had Romancing the Stone. We had Indiana Jones, and since I mean we haven't really had anything like that. And so no. I think that made Pirates just feel uh, different. And so I think Pirates soared on its own merits. And as Dalton was saying, it has something for everybody. And uh, it's not the name of Depp. I'm sure he had a part in it, but I think it drew audiences because it was new and it felt different. It wasn't based on a comic or part of a franchise. It was a story inspired by a theme park ride, of all things, that felt fresh at the time. And I think that may be what audience continue to look for. Originality, fresh ideas, and fun. Arthur, thank you so much for that analysis. I really, I always appreciate when you bring that kind of that studio reading, that uh, actor or director career reading. I think it's important, you know, for the historical context when we're talking about a film to see where it lines and the careers of those involved. Uh, Alex, what are, you, what are you thinking about this week in terms of your analysis? Oh, sure. Uh, I just wanted to also congratulate Arthur for that reading. Congratulate? That sounds very strong of a word. <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, Jesus. I'd like to thank God. Uh, my homeboys uh, back in the my, hood. Yeah. Um, my, my bodyguard. My, my entourage. I, I can't forget my mom. Kids, if you're watching this at home, go to bed. Makeup artist. Uh, is that all the is that all the cliches? Yeah. So there, there's a playoff. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I no, I really like that reading, especially since coming from film, it, I've never really studied film using that track or lenses myself. So having someone else 
kind of digest it for me and explain it to me. I like hearing about it for sure. Um, yeah, so today I'm going to talk to you about um, one piece of symbolism that runs rampant throughout this uh, movie. I couldn't tell you about the sequel films, but especially throughout this movie. Um, and that is of the apple. Um, in the film, uh, the Barbosa, he, he says things like, I'm going to eat a whole bushel of apples whenever, you know, he, uh, he does that. There's an apple in basically any scene where they're talking about his condition or next his... Next Miss Swan, eat the apple. Yes, eat the apple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, in, in all of these scenes, he, they're like, there's this really deep obsession with apples. And I found that really interesting considering the fact that um, the cost of apples at this time, especially for pirates who were probably dying of scurvy, must have been a bit... A little probably cost prohibitive to own apples, um, you know, as men of their ilk, especially if they're having to give all the Spanish gold back and they're now kind of a little broke. Um, well, they have their cave full of jewels or what have you. But, but. yeah, no, you're saying, I mean, prob- fresh produce definitely cost prohibitive on the high seas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And those Granny Smith apples are from Australia, so those, you know those are those are expensive. Yeah. Wait, are Granny Smith apples really from Australia? Uh, apparently. According to IB, IMDb Trivia. It was a thing Jeffrey Rush wanted because he was from Australia, and so they took the Granny Smiths. Okay, well, so there you go. There's another part, you know, if we take that piece of Granny Smiths from Australia and apply it to this film. Um, yeah, that, that seems a little strange, unless the apples, of course, symbolize something. Um, a lot of a lot of scholars agree that apples appear in many religious traditions, such as uh, as a mystical or forbidden fruit. Um, they're obviously across religions, across mythology and folk tales, like, and they're all, it's part of those kind of, I know there's a term for it, but it escapes me, but those myths that kind of transcend all these cultural boundaries, you know, the myths of the great floods and, you know, there's lots of stories and lots of, um, religions that have dealings with apples in them. Um, and then of course you have popular Christian theology and ideology and I can, I can, Iconography. Thank you. Iconography that has, you know, Adam and Eve, they're the ones, not, they're not picking a pomegranate, which I've read somewhere that that might be more likely of a fruit that they plucked from the tree of the Garden of Good and Evil. It was a peach because peaches are disgusting. Okay, sure. <laughs> but, you know, in most popular culture, they're depicted as plucking an apple um, from a tree. And, um, of course, that's in the garden symbolizing the fall of man. They fell from God's grace, and, you know, their immortality was revoked. Um, In this film, immortality is actually given to these pirate men um, as punishment for their crimes. Um, Of course, it's immortality in the way that you don't want immortality. It's not immortality being close to God's favor favor and being in his, you know, his squad or whatever. It's immortality, you know, as being eternally separated from God, like more of like a hell on earth or just hell in general, um, permanent separation from God. And in this, in the fact that um, these apples might have even been introduced into Christian themes at all was typically the result of Renaissance painters because they're adding elements of Greek mythology into these biblical scenes. So the men in this movie have fallen, and the apple represents this new knowledge of, of the 
of the cost of immortality and the den- the denial of all life's pleasures. Whenever Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the garden of the tree, you know, they are receiving the denial of all their life's pleasures. Um, and of course, specifically one of these pleasures that is actually t- talked about in the text of the film is the erotic desires of these pirates. I think that's one of the main symbol symbols of the apple in this film, besides, you know, just what I've already discussed is that these men, they can't enjoy the fruit of the women. They can't enjoy, cause they're of course throughout literature and film and culture. Um, lots of, um, parts of females anatomy is compared to that of fruits being supple and firm and moist and what have you. And, and so the men, they cannot, I could eat a peach for hours. Thanks, uh, Nate Cage. <laughs> Well, but yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of that symbology of it being this erotic symbol and the fact that these men cannot enjoy one of what they consider to be one of life's pleasures and it's perpetually denied from them. Um, And that's I think that's about all I have. Otherwise, going to be stepping on some toes in uh, Dalton's analysis, because I think he's going to dovetail pretty swiftly into that. I think so as well, but thank you very much. I love that reading, and I absolutely, I think it's all over what's going on. I think there's also um, a, a Freudian bit uh, that's working there as well, this whole um, uh, sublimation of desire, right? So they, yeah. they, they push everything into the robbing and the pillaging, even though they get no pleasure from it. Right. So very well done. I like it very much. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you in terms of analysis? So, uh, yeah, pirates are assholes, guys. Uh, let's make no qualms about it. Uh, they stole people's livelihood. They sank ships with, they sank ships with abandoned uh, military and civilian uh, the like, and they raped scores and scores of women. Pillage is a synonym for rape, everybody. Uh, and this is something we do throughout culture uh, and across historical lines. We love to romanticize history. This film is all about how kick-ass it is to be a pirate, especially the second and third films are all about how pirates just want to be free and the man's trying to keep them down, which is not entirely untrue. Uh, it's just their idea of freedom uh, involves stealing people's livelihood and uh, sexually assaulting people. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, um, but again, it's, it's not anything new or uncommon uh, in popular culture. Uh, cowboys, a uh, bunch of war-addicted uh, Civil War veterans uh, who stole other people's cows, branded them as their own, uh, were hired guns to kill other people, uh, complete lawlessness, rape and murder. Uh, I mean, they're, in 1890, you could just shoot a person, and if nobody saw you, you got away with it. Uh, and that's why the Wild West was so crazy. Uh, samurais, a bunch of uh, elitist aristocratic assholes who said, nope, civilians can't carry swords, only samurais, uh, or I'm sorry, not civilians, peasants, uh, but we can kill with abandon. Uh, samurais were known to uh, test the sharpness of their sword against anybody who had um, infringed upon their nobility by uh, strapping them down and seeing if they could cut them in half with one blow. That's a real thing that samurais did. Knights, also elitist aristocratic assholes. Uh, Vikings, also rapists. And yet these are things we see throughout popular culture. Uh, One of the History Channel's most popular television programs of all time is about Vikings, which, again... (laughs) I'm thinking uh, oh, history, <laughs> oh, History Channel, how you have fallen. Uh, Akira Kurosawa deals with samurai's uh, aristocracy and elitism a little bit, but still, it's like, man, aren't samurai's fucking badass. Uh, ditto for 13 Assassins, which is one of my favorite action movies of the last 10 years. Rampant glorification of the samurai. 
every single Western ever prior to about 1975 is about how great it was to be a cowboy until you get films like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Outlaw Josie Wales, Unforgiven. We start to move into the revisionist westerns. That's when we start to analyze just how bad the West was. Uh, but again, Pirates of the Caribbean is a love letter to being a pirate, to the idea of high, sea, high seas freedom, uh, sailing to catch the horizon, uh, when really being a pirate was about murdering civilians and taking their gold while it was in transit uh, among the islands of the Caribbean and also the islands of the South Pacific, um, and also stealing and trading slaves. That's a thing pirates did because they were targeting slave ships a lot of the time because they carried both valuable cargo and money. So I just think, uh, and again, it's something we do throughout Throughout popular culture, throughout literature and video games and um, just the gambit of what we consider art and entertainment uh, deals with a lot of glorification of history, uh, forgetting that that history comes with a lot of uh, dead and oppressed peoples. So I think it's important to keep in mind that um, while Johnny Depp's fun, while Jeffrey Rush is fun, uh, they were bad people in real life. Uh, th- and they don't even shy away from it that much in this film. Uh, during the sacking of Port Royal, there is an implied uh, attempted rape. Uh, the guy with the bombs uh, runs cackling after a screaming woman. Uh, Jeffrey Rush uh, demands that uh, Elizabeth Swan give him his dress back, and he smells it and says, Oh, so warm. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of coded uh, sexual imagery throughout this film. And uh, so it's not even like they shy that much away from it, and yet we're supposed to be on the side of Will Turner at the end. His character arc is accepting that being a pirate's okay. So that's kind of weird. Uh, and I just, you know, remember to keep your critical eyes on, uh, listener. Don't, don't ever let the films lie to you about what history had in store for us. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. And I want to talk about that process by which history is changed and uh, is sort of valorized, legendized, mythologized, and made into a thing uh, that is uh, sometimes something of moral instruction, that there are these certain men and women, mostly men, in human history who are just exceptional, uh, mostly because they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. There's a couple things that go on in the course of this film that sort of challenge those legendary aspects. Uh, there's a story that's being told between the uh, set of pirates who are in prison next door to Johnny Depp, and they're talking about the Black Pearl and how it's going to come and it's going to kill everybody, and they're not going to leave any survivors. And Johnny, uh, rather Captain Jack, says, I wonder where the stories come from then, mate. Right, and the question being, there can't be any stories about not leaving any survivors when the Black Pearl comes if they leave no survivors because no one will be there to tell said story. Uh, another case in point is Johnny's time uh, marooned on the island, and uh, you know the the what actually happened was he was there three days, and it, rum runners were using the island as sort of a storehouse, and they found him, picked him up, he was able to barter passage. But the story that's told is that after fourteen days. Uh, starving and going mad. He went and sat in the ocean for three days, you know, just up to his chest, I guess, in the water. And all the wildlife of the seas came to him and said, or not said, maybe they said, I don't even know. Uh, at this point, they could have been talking wildlife. It is a Disney film. But they all come to him. They probably sang a song about being under the sea, and there's nothing better down where it's wetter, probably. But nonetheless, and there's a Freudian imagery there for you as well, dear listener. But I'm on. racist Jamaican crab. Correct. Uh, but what ends up happening is the story is that he uh, uh, lashes together a handful of sea turtles and sails back in. And, of course, Elizabeth Turner asks the question. The it's, gotcha. uh, it's Will Turner. Oh, excuse me. Will, does Will ask the question? Yeah, Will or? says, what did he use for rope? 
human ah, hair, human hair from, from my, my back, back. <laughs> which and, is really funny, which is amazingly hilarious. But there is a thing that happens when we tell stories. When we, and again, the the, the moral lesson for Jack Sparrow, even though Jack is far from a moral character, oh yeah, is he's chaotic neutral for sure. There are there are human beings who are just bl- blessed, endowed, whatever you want to say, with a certain degree of luck, ability, and just you know uh, sheer fortitude of will that you cannot shut them down. And we do this sort of thing all the time. Uh, we could talk for hours about the legend of Wyatt Earp, a real character, a lawman uh, in uh, you know, Tombstone, New Mexico, most famously also in Dodge City, Kansas and other places. And he was in a handful of gunfights and he survived, which is a big deal because living through a gunfight is no small feat. Is no small feat. But that being said, the brother just got lucky. So such a good comparison, Dustin. But the actual fight, the OK Corral, the most famous gunfight he was in when he was in Tombstone. Um, OK Corral did not happen in Oklahoma, dear listener. Just FYI. Yep. And lasted for about forty-five seconds to a minute and a half. It was over so quickly. But if you watch any cinematic version, it's five, ten minutes. Right of ducking around and amazing shooting and you know bullets passing through uh, Wyatt Earp's coat you know because the man can't be touched by a bullet etc so on and so forth. But when Wyatt Earp is actually talking about it, he does there are there are interviews and there are questions he was asked because he was quite famous at the time. And I've read these things because this is a particular part of history that I'm fascinated with personally. Ditto. Uh, he said, "No, really, they missed, and we I didn't. just I, I just learned how to take my time real fast." When and, and to aim and shoot is what it came down. No, you're to. talking about a bunch of drunk guys firing short range firearms at each other from long distances. People and are yeah, miss. and his, his says no. My point was, I just I, I figured out that I, I how long it took me to actually line up the sights, and I didn't pull the trigger until I lined up the sights. That was it, and I was able to do that a little quickly. But and everyone else was just you know shooting like uh, ludicrous in, in a gangster movie. Uh, there is another western that I want to reference here in terms of this sort of legendary aspect, and that is John Ford's film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance starring Jimmy Stewart, uh, John Wayne. And uh, in that particular film, what you see is uh, there's this very, very legendary story that kind of crops up all around John Wayne's character and a bit about Jimmy Stewart's character as well. And both of them experienced quite a bit of dumb luck and just got right place, right time, somebody backed him up, those sort of things. And the last bit of the film where there is a newspaper man who's going to talk about the story and say, listen, when the events clash with the legend – you print the legend, right? And that is that is sort of how history is formed and is how we valorize and, again, uh, find ways to um, sort of uh, moralize what happens in human history. There is a famous – and everyone knows it's not true – uh, anecdotal story about one um, George Washington and a certain cherry tree and an axe. You know, I cannot tell a lie. It was me that he didn't cut down no cherry tree, and he sure didn't tell the truth when he got busted. Right? But those sort of things uh, teach the moral lesson. If you want to be a great man of great fortitude, therefore you do these things. Uh, Wider because of just the sheer force of his will and the sheer force of the justice that lived within his heart was able to be successful in all of these encounters that he had with various and sundry, you know, organized crime elements of the Wild West. Uh, the same thing being said here about the story about Ch- Captain Jack Sparrow, this particular pirate who eluded capture. The thing is, eluding capture is really not all that difficult. But if you do it for a while, it must be because you're sort of magic. Because the moral lesson then is um, you can't evade justice unless you're kind of magic. And all this ties into a, a certain theme that we s- tend to have now, um, this discussion about what's called revisionist history. 
or the revising of history. And what it means is one of two things. Um, sometimes revisionist history is simply that which happens most immediately, where we begin to immediately make um, heroes of people. Um, we begin to valorize them in ways that, that that's above and beyond what they deserve or what they're worth, uh, those whom we experience. So, that, so that, that's a version of revisionist history. And then there's a thing that's sometimes called revisionist history, which is where we go actually back to the history and say, these guys, even though we think a lot of them, they're actually complete jerks and they're not good people. Thomas Jefferson is the first example I think of and also Benjamin Franklin, who fathered several children, uh, to each to them, uh, with their slaves. And it's not okay, and, it, and it's an important part of history. And it, it's, it's not about a gotcha or taking somebody down a peg. It's about recognizing the actual factuality of the events that took place. And so what we're seeing here in cinema is uh, a really important conversation about how we sort of we muck up the historicity of what we actually experience. And, and, and the point being, dear listener, is that what, what happens in history, and again, this is bringing it back to the film Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, is that we are seeing the formation of legend and uh, for, the, for the purpose of morality. And so you see this transition being to happen with the Commodore as um, the, uh, just the initial you know, 45 minutes of the film where he is clearly the worst pirate he's ever seen. But because of dumb luck and just good fortuitous events and some people showing up and doing some things, he escapes and uh, somebody else has to tell him that is the best pirate I've ever seen, and he has to go ahead and condescend to the fact and say, "Yes, it would happen to appear so." Jack Sparrow's not a particularly good pirate, as it turns out. You know, he he's, he's pretty think- mediocre pirate, I think. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's thoughtful and he's you know he's he's sort of got plans and whatnot, but they never really quite actually work out. Even when he has this big scheme that he's going to work out with the uh, with the taking of the Black Pearl, and he gets lucky and he ends up with the ship anyway, right? But again, he's the greatest pirate ever. And the point being, he still remains successful because of just sheer dumb luck. Wyatt Earp, dumb luck. Honestly, winning the Revolutionary War, also dumb luck. And it totally could have gone another way. Civil War, same thing. All the things that we have are very, very circumstantial. And then when they happen, what we tend to try to do is try to make them these sort of fated, destined, perhaps even predestined events. And they are just the things that happen to have happened the way they happened. And when we recognize that... We can actually deal with the warts and also the moments of valor and courage and bravery and whatever that come along with it. So I think the Curse of Black Pearl wrestles with that in an interesting way, and I, you know, I appreciate the film for that. Well, there you go, dear listener. Now you've heard our analyses and what we think of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, Curse of the Black Pearl. We'd love to hear more from you about what you think about all those things. Uh, so please uh, hit us back on that. But we now come to a point in our show where we render a verdict where the gallows is set and we must decide. Shell for trash, else or instead, with Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, Curse of the Black Pearl. I ask you first, Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you? Uh, mm, well, I, okay, this is going to be crazy. Shelf it. I, I don't care. Shelf it. It's good. It's fun. It's a good summer film. It has a lot of stuff that keeps you engaged and going on. Like, I, I, I also say shelf it because finding it to stream is difficult. So probably need to own it if you ever want to watch it. And I would say watching it again, at least the first one. Because, honestly, in my personal canon... I look at this film as a standalone. I don't really consider it in, in there's a more stories to be told about these people. I, it looks pretty closed-doored 
and I like just leaving it there. So um, I would shelf it. It's fun. It's it's a blast. So um, other things. You should also check out, if you're interested in Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Errol Flynn movies, obviously. I mean, pirates, all that. Um, and then, of course, I would also recommend The Princess Bride, which, of course, uh, Carrie Elwes is channeling Errol Flynn a lot in that movie. Excellent but it, choice. But it has, like, a lot of the high adventure elements that, you know how we were talking earlier, is like, where did all these high adventure movies go whenever, you know, P- Romancing the Stone and Indiana Jones, like, that kind of fell away? Well, I mean, that's kind of in a similar time period um, of of film. So um, go, go check those movies out, definitely, for sure. I mean, there's lots of... Uh, there's lots of pirate movies, especially in like the older generation of film. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohan. And Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Show for trash, else, or instead? I can't recommend you buy this film. I mean, it's pretty disposable. Uh, you know, we're, we're sometimes very generous with the shelving on this, this show. Um, I don't feel the need to be particular, particularly generous with this one. I mean, it's fun. Like I said, it's fun, fun, fun uh, until your daddy takes your T-bird away, but yeah, I can't recommend you own it. Uh, you don't need to own Pirates of the Caribbean and the Black Pearl. It's the motherfuckers on cable all the time. Um, that is true. And also it gave us all those really not particularly good sequels, and for that I will never forgive it. Um, oh, yeah. Now that said, I do like the film quite a bit, and I got to give it um, Six Monkeys Named Jack out of a possible um, seven to watch with it really anything but the sequels to this film because they're not good. Yeah, uh, they're no way. way too long and they're a waste of your time. Um, you could watch uh, other fun Orlando Bloom movies like the Lord of the Rings films where he plays Legolas. Uh, he's got one of his very first roles in uh, Black Hawk Down, which we've done on this show and I think is a very good film. Um, you could watch other Johnny Depp movies. Uh, there's a lot of them. A lot of them are not very good, but he is pretty. When he's good, he's great. Um, Jeffrey Rush is always amazing. Um, the only other time I think the only time I think I've ever seen him play an Australian was in the King's Speech. Uh, that was a fun tidbit to learn. Um, Kieran Knightley's good in everything she does. Check out their other works. Uh, Gore Verbinski hasn't made very many other movies that are worth watching, in my opinion. Um, but I think the cast of this film has been in some good ones. So, um, well, following Curse of Black Pearl, I, don't, I think he's done some early work that I might have seen, but I can't remember off the top of my head to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, yeah, man, I can't. I can't recommend you buy this movie, but uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, shelf or trash? Else or instead? I would say shelf it. <clears throat> I, I think it's just a lot of fun. I think it's a throwback to a different time uh, in cinema. And so I think it, it just works in a lot of ways. And, and the cast, you know, it's, it's just fun. I give it seven sea turtles roped together by body hair out of nine and, a, and three quarters. Uh, and I would say pair this with the Pirates, Band of Misfits, the oh, uh, that stop is so motion good. Uh, film from a couple years ago, which is just a lot of fun, a lot of great comedy and writing. I would also pair this with Pirate Radio, uh, starring Bill Nye, uh, who features prominently in the sequels as uh, Davy Jones. And then uh, I would also, I think, watch this alongside Temple of Doom. I think the tones mm. match well, and the supernatural nice. uh, hoodoo voodoo aspect uh, kind of works well with Pirates. I agree. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I am actually, um, I, I'm, I'm abashed and ashamed to be in agreement with Dalton Stewart and go ahead and say trash. Yes, and, good. Uh, be, because of its heavy uh, rotation on hate. cable. Oh, and, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not insulted by the fact that you guys want to throw it away. Absolutely not. I'm just insulted to agree with Dalton. Take agree with your Dalton. rightful place by my side. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, he won't help you with this. Uh, but what I would say... Where is your God now? <laughs> <laughs> 
what I would say, though, that you should uh, – I wouldn't say watch instead. I would say catch it on cable, catch it off the millions of shelves it already is located on, and uh, find it in those ways and watch it. That's fine. I, there's no, you will not be angry that you've done so. And then uh, combine it with two westerns and another pirate movie. Uh, the first western I already mentioned in my analysis is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and then um, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which is doing almost precisely the same sort of thing. Uh, then I would also say that there is a fantastic made-for-TV TNT movie out of the late 80s, early 90s. I don't know when. I caught it live on the air starring uh, one Charlton Heston as uh, Long John Silver. It's a Treasure Island remake and, uh, and a very, very young Christian Bale. As Jim Hawkins. Get your stinking claws off me, you damn dirty pirates. But what's really funny, um, fun about the movie, it's got all the swashbuckling and piracy, and it's got you know, all the violence and all those sort of things that go along with it, but it's also got a bit of the tone of the humor, and in, in a lot of ways, um, Johnny Depp's, uh, the writing of Johnny Depp's character, now the performance of Johnny Depp's character, is very similar, that, that Long John Silver is always just a step or two ahead. Right, and there's this idea of these pirate codes and the use of black spots and that kind of stuff. And there's a fantastic monologue where Charlton Heston realizes that the black spot that has been handed to him at a certain point has been cut from a Bible, and his performance of it is really fantastic. Well, that's just a great monologue. I mean, it shows up in every adaptation of sure. Treasure Island, including Treasure Planet, which we did on the show way, way back. So those are my recommends, your listener. Your syllabus just got a little bit longer. Let's move on to how you could actually contribute to the conversation. We want that so badly. We want to hear what you think about what we said, what we didn't say, what we should have said. And uh, we would love to hear your quibbles and or agreements with um, our analysis slash review or thoughts. Oh, I didn't even give it a rating. I do give uh, this particular film uh, six and a half still warm dresses out of a possible 11. And I would like to also give this a rating, which I previously neglected. I would like to give it 15 um, rums being gone out of a possible 18. Rum's all gone. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, we didn't ever talk about how the rum was gone. It is It is kind of funny. Um, Johnny Depp's alcoholism is a little <laughs> disturbing, honestly. It's going to come right down to it. Uh, there you go, dear listener. Now, let's talk about those social media means. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast. Uh, we have quite a bit of feedback coming in this week, so that's cool. Uh, in regards to our song game, the original songs from uh, New Jack City, uh, Fran King says, hope you all are having a good summer. I have three suggestions, but I'm not sure the first two were specifically written for their film. Uh, he mentions first uh, Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate, uh, which did exist good previous, pick. Good, I believe. Good pick, though. But it is that movie's just got a great soundtrack from yeah. top to bottom. It's perfect, yeah. Um, I There's w- also a great use of the uh, cover, the Mrs. Robinson cover by the Lemonheads in um, Wolf of Wall Street, which is a song from the 90s, but the use of the cover in that movie is awesome. Uh, he also mentions uh, Time Warp from Rocky Horror. Is one of his film, uh, favorites. And then he mentions Xanadu, and he says, don't judge. I ain't going to hate on that. That's funny. That's good. I like that. Thanks, Fran. Uh, then, in regards to an article we posted on Facebook from the NPR about misogyny in Straight Outta Compton and hip-hop in general, uh, Caleb Masters states, love the movie and highly recommend it, uh, but the question of misogyny in a few key scenes is unnerving. Then again, it is a piece of the culture the film is portraying, so it gets complicated. Uh, Sam Lacates asks that we... Please do primer at some point. 
Uh, to which I reply, it could happen because Arthur yes, loves time travel. Yes, please, and I love that movie. We did do uh, Shane Carruth's um, Upstream Color uh, last February, if you're interested in hearing that, listener. Uh, on a throwback Thursday post mentioning Event Horizon, Randall Bay says, I love this film. So, trying to get some love for the Event Horizon show, and Randall enjoys that movie. And then from Google+, Plus, we had uh, uh, Luis Angel Rosario says that World War Z is a must-see for any zombie fan and a must-have for any zombie collection. Two thumbs up, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, smiley face. Uh, so, Luis, thanks for that feedback. We appreciate that. Uh, we received an email, thanks to Dalton, uh, about some maybe upcoming promotion stuff. He says, Hi, Dalton. Uh, your friend Caleb, who is featured in our film, said that you might be interested in viewing our director, J.T. Hathaway, uh, for the uh, film um, Upland, I believe is what it's called. Uh, and they gave us some links to a trailer and and uh, some things like that. And so it's, it's exciting times for us as we can hopefully uh, promote some indie films and directors. Yeah, it's a, it's a 60-millimeter short film. Uh, my friend uh, uh, Caleb Bruza showed me. Uh, he, he's in it. Um, really cool trailer. Uh, definitely got some shades of David Lynch in there. And again, anything being shot on film at the independent level is always really cool. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you anything else about social media means by which conversations might be held? When I get back on the internet, I'm going to get me a whole bushel of followers. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find good <laughs> the Good Trash Genre Cast. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, on Twitter at good underscore trash. Any feedback coming in from that Twitter? Oh, yeah. Twitter? Lots of retweets and favorites. Uh, a, a really quite a large amount, both for our uh, Jack Reacher shows and our uh, Jack Reacher show and our new Jack City show. Um, Brigham Cole shared a link from birthmoviesdeath.com, formerly known as badassdigest.com, announcing that Tom Hardy would be producing an adaptation of the Vertigo comic series 100 Bullets, which is great. Very, very good. And I love Tom Hardy, and I love that comic book, so that's very exciting. Uh, new followers um, in the form of Lux Lisbon, which is apparently a London-based indie rock band. Uh, another one, uh, new follower, at Mega Ran, who is a teacher, rapper, and hero, uh, according to his Twitter bio. Um, we also got something from a friend of the show and uh, occasional guest host, Kirsten Thurkelson. That's at Cranston on Twitter. She asked if we had ever considered doing a Wild Wild West episode, uh, and Arthur replied to her, maybe during Fresh Prince February, and then Arthur proposed the lineup for said marathon. Um, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, I, Robot, and I Am Legend, and uh, Kirsten's request got quite a bit of feedback, so I think that's something the listeners want to see. And that is what we've got coming in in the way of feedback from the Twitterverse this week. Well, thank you very much. Of course, dear listener, you can give us comments also on iTunes and reviews. Those are so helpful for us getting more good trash out there in the world. We're trying to pollute the world with all of our good trash thoughts and analysis. And so please help us in doing that. You can leave comments also at Stitcher and at the Podbean site, goodtrashhonorcast.podbean.com. And we'd love to hear from you there. But enough of this foolishness, guys. I think it's about time to play the game. This week's game, dear listener, is our favorite trends in pop culture cinema. That's right. Favorite trends in popular culture cinema or pop cultural movements started by cinema. Brought to you by Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, Curse of the Black Pearl. Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, Curse of the Black Pearl. Who else is tired of seeing Jack Sparrows at the Medieval Fair? Oh, my gosh. Are we not all? Thank you so much for that observation. So many damned white men with dreadlocks. 
It's a bad thing. Well, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are your favorite picks? Well, I really just want to talk about one in particular, and that is the deluge of uh, zombie-related media that we are under. Um, and I really think we can trace the roots back of this. The you know Obviously, zombies were very popular throughout uh, the late 60s into the mid-80s, thanks to George A. Romero. Uh, again, um, his film, Night of the Living Dead, was not particularly successful upon its release, but was hugely influential. Um, his Dawn of the Dead uh, was... A huge hit based on its budget, and I think has had an uh, immeasurable impact on horror cinema. Um, but I think you can trace, you know, the start of this current zombie trend back to a couple of things in particular, um, starting in the late '90s with the Resident uh, Evil video games uh, from Capcom, which then inspired um, the Resident Evil film in 1999, starring uh, nope, 2000, 2001, somewhere between 99 and 2001, because uh, the sequel was 04. Um, but the Resident Evil film, um, also 28 Days Later, and um, the Dawn of the Dead remake in 2004. And I think all of those those three films in particular showed that there was a market for zombie films still. In 1997 or 98, when they were shooting The Faculty, um, Robert Rodriguez actually mentioned on the set to Josh Hartnett and Elijah Wood that he was interested in them being in a zombie movie that would one day become Planet Terror because uh, he thought zombies were about to come back in a big way. And the man was correct. Uh, they have exploded. They're huge. I mean, Dawn of the Dead is one of the or, um, The Walking Dead is one of the most you know successful television shows in the history of cable television. Um, and I think that's no in no small part to the really huge hits uh, that Dawn of the Dead remake and um, <clears throat> uh, Twenty Eight Days Later were at the box office. I mean, they were smashes. Um, and Resident Evil, it's uh, the film adaptation was no slouch itself. It spawned a shitload of sequels. Uh, I think things really kicked off with. Um, Zombieland in 2008, which was a or 2009, which was a huge commercial success. Um, another film we've done on the show before, but I think it's really interesting. I mean, zombies are something I've been fascinated by um, since I was a kid. Uh, the first time I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was about 11 or 12. Uh, oh my my God, I might have been younger than that. I remember watching it on a Sci-Fi Channel though, um, in the middle of the day, and it still freaked me out. And I was just like fascinated by the idea of of this group struggle for survival against an unstoppable horde. Um, so, I mean, my, my friends and I, uh, in elementary school were talking about how to survive a zombie apocalypse. Um, shortly, uh, after that, you know, these huge zombie hits. And then, you know, now there is a book, uh, about how to survive a zombie apocalypse, uh, and a sequel to it, uh, World War Z that became one of, uh, or the highest grossing zombie film of all time. So I think it's very interesting to see this trend, uh, something that started out as a, a niche horror uh, genre, subgenre, turn into this you know global phenomenon. I mean, there's zombie everything, uh, zombie beers, zombie playing cards, more zombie video games than you can shake a stick at. Uh, and I, I think it all goes back to the Resident Evil video games, uh, its film adaptation, and 28 Days Later, and uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I made my entire way through seminary writing zombie and theology papers. Yeah. Um, so thanks, Ken Pathenroth, for all of your research and scholarship. Uh, moving right along, Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what say you? I would all, I would like to propose that the billowing trends of young adult novels adapted into cinema as drivers of um, giant pop cultural phenomenons, um, because because you have. I think Harry Potter is probably the very first one that really hit it in a big way. I mean, I think people were adapting kids' books all the time, but that was the one where it actually became a thing to oh, do. Oh, huge. And then 
from that moment on, it had just become trendy and the thing to do is to adapt whatever young adult series that you're writing at the time. That is, it's almost, if it's a hit, it's going to be a movie. That's just like the, the model now. Yeah. You're, you're and, pitching a um, screenplay when you release your novel. Exactly. And, you know, the how the book reads often becomes, you know, the chief driver of how, um, how well it's marketed because you have, and, and also it com- comes in waves too in terms of not just, the genre of, oh, young adult novels being interpreted in movies. But actually school. the genre itself. The genre yeah. genre itself, of course, because you have, you know, you have your kind of more traditional magic, Western magic systems. Then you go into paranormal romance as um, bookstores often categorize those films with, you know, uh, Vampire Diaries and Twilight and, you know, ones of their ilk, um, which ended off spinning off 50 Shades back, you know, a few, a few years later due to fan fiction and stuff. And then you have... Um, the big resurgence, then you have the resurgence of um, dystopian uh, novels with The Hunger Games, because I remember reading The Hunger Games, and I was like, this is a movie. And then it gets made into a movie. And then basically every, now there's like a column in the bookstore that's like, dystopian young, young adult. adult. Yeah, and then you get The Maze Runner. Yeah, The and, Maze Runner, The Giver, uh, which was written yeah. way before The Hunger Games. And Divergent. Divergent. And, yeah. and I'm kind of interested to see, because we're at the very, I'm like Mockingjay part two or one is on its way out. Two is on its way out soon ish. Um, So I'm excited and interested to see what, who's going to be the next groundbreakers. Um, John Green's paper towns just got adapted into a film because he just did the fault in our stars. And so I think the one after, I think they're going to do looking for Alaska, which I'm really excited about. But um, so that John Green writes kind of like contemporary real life, maybe slightly soppy, uh, Young, young adult type reads, no magic, no, you know, crazy government systems trying to hurt you. Nicholas or Sparks for people who haven't had sex yet. Oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> Nicely cracked anyway, crack the code. I'd be interested to see if that's going to be the next big trend is, you know, real life dramas. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Well, I'm going to go a little bit in chronological order, and uh, I'm going to start with one uh, that shows how film influenced society in a bad way, and I'm going to go back to uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, uh, which came out and uh, in the dying days of the KKK and began to uh, kind of re, uh, uh, kind of legendarize this group, as Dustin talked about. And uh, after that, we saw the group boost up to about 4 million members. After the release of the film, um, yeah, the clan was on its way out when uh, *Birth of a Nation* was released, and so it, it, it shows how film can impact a society in a negative way. And so I'm going to start with that. I'm going to go uh, into the '30s next uh, with *It Happened One Night*, uh, in which uh, there is a scene, uh, famously, where Clark Gable undresses, takes his shirt off, and he is not wearing any type of undershirt. And the rumor has it that following that, sales of undershirts plummeted. Mm. Uh, so here we have a movie impacting fashion and society. Get it, Clark Gable. Man, he's a sexy beast. Uh, next, I'm going to say Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which just became a cultural phenomenon. Uh, games, toys, spinoffs, TV shows. It was everywhere. Music videos. It was just all over the place. Uh, my last one is something near and dear to my heart, and that is a TV show, and it's The Simpsons. Uh, throughout the 90s, which just permeated pop culture, uh, clothing, games, magazines, comics, 
everything. Catchphrases everywhere. Oh man, that's Sim- that Simpsons, Simpsons. That Simpsons arcade beat 'em up is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Dropped yeah. a lot of quarters <laughs> at, at uh, many a pizza place. And so all this to say, pop culture is very influential. Thank you very much for um, tracing out the influences of pop culture. I just want to talk about a couple of film cycles that got very popular at a particular point in time, and I don't entirely know why. And I want to back up into the fifties and start talking about these amazing. Um, a cinemascope, you know, widescreen presentations of these sword and sandal pictures that happened all over. And they were mostly motivated. People wanted to see spectacle in cinema. And it was a time in which, uh, you know, the Hollywood system was beginning to die. There's a resurgence that sort of happens in the 70s with the new Hollywood and new American cinema also brings some blood into that as well um, on the avant-garde side. But that was an attempt to do just that. And it went on for a long time. And people thought the way we make a lot of money is set something in a desert. And uh, so that sort of exoticism, um, uh, the term they used that time was Orientalism, uh, which is, you know, ugly. But that's, that, that's something that went on quite a lot. Also, I want to talk about the 90s and the obsession with disaster films that happened at that time. We've already done a show on Twister. Uh, Armageddon is an example. We have the Dante's Peak movies. We have uh, the Volcano, um, similarly um, titled. We have Deep the Impact. Impact. Yeah. And so there was, um, we're all going to die, and you you got to be ready, and you got to be really tough, you know, or know somebody who's awesome and smart. And I don't really know what that's all about, other than perhaps Captain Planet may have brought it all about because of eco-disaster sort of stuff that was going on in the culture. Um, but that being said, those are two particular cycles that I find really interesting that I don't have a whole lot of answers about, but I do find just their timing and what's going on with them, either historically or culturally, significant well, there you go, dear listener. What are your favorite um, cinematic pop cultural phenomena? Um, and uh, we'd love to hear about that on those various means of social media. But we now come to the end of the show, um, and we conclude, as we always do, with what's got us fired up in pop culture. There you go, dear listener. That's that catchy music that brings us right into that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up this week in pop culture? Uh, I am, yeah. I uh, was in Kansas City this weekend, and I had an opportunity to go to the Alamo Draft House and see Doug Benson do one of his Benson movie interruptions. Um, That was to benefit the uh, Kansas City roller derby team. Apparently, this is the second year in a row he's done it. All ticket sales went to uh, the Kansas City roller derby team. I think they're the Fountain City something or others. Uh, I guess last year they did Whip It, and um, uh, this year they did uh, Kansas City Bomber, which is a movie from the late 70s starring Raquel Welch uh, about roller derby. It is terrible. It is a piece of shit movie. But I had a lot of fun watching uh, Doug Benson and his friend Graham Elliott make fun of it. Um, the the um, Benson movie interruption is uh, very similar to Rift Tracks or uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 where Doug Benson sits in the theater with you uh, and a couple of buddies, uh, and they get their microphones and they make fun of the movie while you're watching it. And it was a lot of fun. I, I had a blast. Uh, do not watch Kansas City Bomber. It is shitty. Um, but watching Doug Benson make fun of it was a lot of fun. Um, I also, uh, on my road trip to Kansas City, uh, listened to the audiobook adaptation of Ernst Klein's Armada. Uh, Ernst Klein uh, wrote Ready Player One uh, a couple years ago, which is a best-selling novel that's uh, soon to be adapted into a feature film uh, allegedly to be directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Armada um, is awesome. Uh, it was narrated, the audiobook was narrated by Will Wheaton, who also narrated Ready Player One. Uh, the idea of the novel is that uh, this uh, 18-year-old kid, uh, senior in high school, 
uh, not a young adult novel, uh, is really good at this video game called Armada. That's this you know massive uh, online multiplayer game. And he's sitting in school one day, and he looks out the window, and he sees one of the alien spaceships from the video game. And he's like, the what? And he thinks he's going crazy at first and thinks maybe he's going crazy like his dad did. His dad has been dead since he was a baby. And his dad had all this conspiracy theory about how Star Wars and X-Files were all uh, government-created to prepare us for an alien invasion. Um, And it turns out he's not entirely wrong because the aliens really are invading and – uh, the video game was just a training simulation to prepare civilians to pilot drones against the alien armada. Very, very good read. Um, well, or listen, I guess in this case. I, I cannot more highly recommend it. Uh, it's very, very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, are you fired up this week as well? Uh, i got a couple things. Uh, first and foremost, I went and I set up a pool list at a uh, comic book store. Uh, the local neighborhood comic book shop, I set up a pool list so I could get uh, weekly mag- uh, comics that I was wanting to read. Uh, so nice. I wouldn't have to wait. So I feel like a full-fledged uh, geek now. Um, so I'm excited about that and looking forward to getting those without having to worry about being sold out. Um, also, this Saturday is NXT Brooklyn TakeOver, Woo-hoo! which I'm super excited about. Thank you. Um, it's a really exciting time for them because they have sold out 13,000 seats for the Barclay Center, uh, which is just fascinating because they normally perform in a uh, arena with like a 1,000 people, if that. And so it's just showing, I think, something really cool happening there uh, with what they're doing with the uh, the NXT brand. So I'm I'm really pumped to watch that. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, are you fired up equally? Mildly fired, yes. Actually, pretty fired. Uh, next week is my birthday, so in celebration of my birthday, August 25th, by the way, uh, you know, because you're not going to be listening to this then, uh, maybe, whatever. It doesn't matter. Anyway, this weekend, I am going to go to Tulsa with my friends that are all wrestling dweebs. And we're going to watch the NXT uh, Brooklyn TakeOver on Saturday. And then we're going to watch SummerSlam on Sunday. And that will be very fun. I'm quite excited about it. And Jon Stewart is hosting SummerSlam. And that's about, yeah, the, the Daily Show's Jon Stewart. I just I just can't get over that. I know he's been on uh, wrestling before. And I think he's hosted some stuff before. But still, this will be my first time actually seeing it live when he does so. And especially on a big TV. <laughs> so that will be very exciting. And then... Um, yeah, that's about all the fire I've got going on for right now for me. So, yeah. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Um, I will just mention that I finished the hammer cycle of um, vampire films. Oh, that's why it's on the brain. Well, that and I'm teaching it. Oh, yeah. And well. so that's exciting. I did see The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, the Hammer um, Shaw Brothers uh, uh, co-production. It's 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 got Dracula involved to an extent, and it's... I would say this. It's a pretty lousy Dracula story and some pretty fun kung fu. And so um, it's available on YouTube and other um, nefarious means, I'm sure. But there you go. I saw that. Also um, watched uh, Chris Lee's um, non-Hammer Dracula performance in Conde Dracula, a Jess Franco film. And uh, it's a very, very close adaptation of the actual novel. And Christopher Lee doing Dracula's monologues is fantastic. That is what I want to say. He's just really, really brilliant and really, really good in that. Finally, um, I've begun my classwork at Oklahoma State in my Ph.D. in film studies, and um, it's all Frenchy films uh, for me right now. And I was able to see uh, District B-13. Oh, man. Yes. So there's a thing called parkour. 
And before that was a thing, um, there was this movie. And this movie sort of made it a thing. So when you see like Jason Bourne doing parkour, it's because they're ripping off this French film um, directed by one Luc Besson. Yeah. And uh, I think Luc, Luc Besson was just a producer. Nice director. It. Is he the director of it? Well, it's uh, starring and action choreographed by the two creators of parkour. I don't yes. know if you knew that. Yeah. That is a fun movie. Yeah, it's dumb as all oh, get out. Oh, it's stupid as shit, but it's good. Yeah, I had I had a blast, and apparently the sequel is available on Netflix, as is the original. Uh, yeah, B13. Uh, Ultimatum. Ultimatum is streaming. The original, I don't know if I it is I thought right it was. Now. It was at one time. I'm going to go find it. When I got done, I said, well, that was a movie. And uh, so I didn't rate it very high, but I gave it a heart on Letterboxd because I did like it very, very much. Dear listener, what are you fired up about? We'd love to hear about that. Give us that feedback via all of those magic means of social media already mentioned on the program. Next week's film is a little Robin Williams joint as we continue our You Don't Know Jack series, and we're going to look at a film called, well, Jack, starring Robin Williams. Nature has given us all an internal clock. Your son's seems to be ticking faster than usual. But he's healthy. Absolutely. However, his cells are developing at four times a normal rate. This continues throughout his life by the time he reaches age 10. He could appear to be an ordinary, full-grown, 40-year-old man. I'm telling you, he's our age, but he looks 40. Jack Powell is a grown-up on the outside. Why ain't he in school? But on the inside... Marco! Bolo, he's all boy. of his life. Everybody, this is Jack Powell. The fifth grade. Whoa, no way. Jeez, he looks like my dad. Look at your hairy arms and your eyebrows. Yeah, he has received a year now. How old are you? I'm ten. You're either not ten or you're a freak. I'm not a freak. You're a freak, four eyes. He's ten. Hey, big guy. You shoot hoops? Me? No, the 40-year-old kid behind you. My mother's coming to meet the principal today. So? And thus, we shall conclude our You Don't Know Jack series. Again, this is a Francis Ford Coppola-directed film, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, and we're kind of excited to be talking about that. But you know what? We're excited to talk about movies because talking about movies with people you care about and having real conversation about what they mean uh, makes the movie-watching experience oh so much more fun. So take a look at that. Take a look at Pirates of the Caribbean, colon, Curse the Black Pearl, and uh, we'll see you next time. Morum, morum, morum for the pirates, morum.